the US Declaration of Independence makes the claim that each of their citizens are endowed with certain unalienable rights. Among these include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is presumed that the responsibility of government is to protect these rights, and that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Is it not the duty of such a government to safeguard the use of drugs in the pursuit of happiness? The US government does perform this function for certain types of drugs or psychoactive compounds, yet paradoxically they continue to export their war on drugs nationally and internationally, arresting hundreds of thousands of their own citizens every year for choosing to alter their consciousness in an illegitimate manner. These criminals are pursuing happiness and pleasure in the same way an alcohol consumer is. However, for reasons that this podcast episode seeks to explore, their right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness do not appear to warrant the same protection by the state. Instead, these people are stigmatised and ostracised by their society. Why and how have we reached this point? Why do governments continue to promote a drug war that overtly undermines conscious sovereignty? Addressing these questions would probably take an entire book to get through, so really my intention here is to provide an illuminating primer rather than an exhaustive examination. I want to really inspire some critical reflection on many of the conventional narratives that we often hear associated with drugs and drug users. Many of these narratives, i.e. the mythology of the self-destructive drug user, formulate the public's perception on drugs and thus legitimise the drug war. Are these narratives empirically based? Does the scientific literature support many of the claims we often hear in the mainstream discourse? For instance, the claim of addiction resulting from a single use of a compound, the gateway drug hypothesis, the idea that all drug use is inherently pathological, the chemical hook theory of drug addiction, the idea that drug use is a major cause of social deprivation in impoverished communities, you know, these beliefs, they often persist unexamined in the population, lingering, as I will argue, as the hangover of anti-drug propaganda. Consequently, it is my effort here to shed light on how we have been so perniciously misled as a culture on the true reality of drug use. Just how harmful are illegal drugs? Our political authorities present a story that illegal drugs are inherently dangerous and destroy communities, yet... How closely tethered is the story to the empirical reality of drug use? We are often repeated this narrative that any and all use of drugs is pathological and to consume them is to flirt dangerously with addiction, moral depravity and hedonism. It is for these reasons a kind of harm reduction argument that we criminalise these things and in doing so disincentivise their use. There are two implicit assumptions in the arguments underlying prohibition. One that criminalising activity does in fact reduce the harms associated with it, and two, that the use of this category of things called illegal drugs is in aggregate harmful. I disagree with both of these claims, and as I will show, my disagreement is not merely the vacuous opinion of a drug addict in denial, but rather something that is supported by a wealth of academic and policy literature. In our current 
prohibition approach, we denigrate certain substances as inherently evil or harmful, and thus any use must be prevented. The tools of legal sanctions, punitive measures, and social stigma are the mechanisms by which this prevention is achieved. This has the effect of enacting barriers, making the act of procurement and consumption fraught with dangers. The dangers of receiving adulterated substances, a leading cause in overdose deaths. The dangers involved with being forced to interact with criminal entities, and as well the dangers of imprisonment, and the resulting social ostracism that accompanies a criminal record. The prohibition system is meant to act as a deterrent for the potential user, creating a sense of fear that negative consequences will follow from their decision to do drugs. This is a framework that treats the misuse of drugs as a criminal rather than health issue. Now, the benefits that we have reaped from this war on conscious sovereignty are the predictable consequences of mass incarceration, broken families, unregulated black markets, the Hobbesian violence of drug cartels, narco-states, and much more. Despite all this, funding into the war on drug effort has only multiplied since this declaration in what seems to be a perpetual game of whack-a-mole between enforcement agencies and drug suppliers. Demand for and use of drugs continues to persist in many societies, despite the best efforts of our drug enforcement agencies. Thus, we are faced with the daunting question of what all this money is really achieving. The stated aim of the drug war was never to eradicate drugs. This is frankly a childish and absurd endeavour, and I don't think anyone of a sound mind would wish to live in such a banal and oppressive society. As Dr. Carl Hart states in his book Drug Use for Grown-Ups, a vital but unstated aim of the drug war was to shore up the budgets of law enforcement and prison authorities, as well as parasitic organisations such as drug treatment centres and urine drug testing outfits. Many supporters of the drug war emphasise the potential public health benefits of reducing drug abuse and its associated societal harms. From this perspective, drug prohibition seeks to protect citizens from the adverse effects of addiction, overdose and drug-related violence. Addressing each of these points in turn, the notion that drug use invariably leads to addiction is a widely spread misconception, unsubstantiated by the empirical evidence on drug use. Addiction comprises a minority of drug use cases for all substances, the overwhelming majority of drug use is non-problematic and does not interfere with the user's responsibilities, relationships and life circumstances. For those that do become addicted, typically there exist deeper systemic reasons for why they became dependent. This could be a history of psychiatric issues such as depression or anxiety, or perhaps socioeconomic factors such as poverty or underemployment. Unfortunately, we too readily blame the drug itself for addiction failing to recognise that most who do use do not become addicted. I will touch upon this issue of addiction again later on in the episode. We can credit overdose deaths to insufficient drug ed education as well as tainted drugs, both expectable consequences of our criminalisation approach. Criminalising a substance merely forces consumers towards unregulated black markets where they cannot fully trust the authenticity of what they are consuming. Many illegal substances when consumed responsibly and in their unadulterated form are very safe and do not carry significant risk of overdose. Take heroin for example. 
when consumed in its pure form and at a reasonable dose for the individual, the substance carries a very low risk of overdose. Overdoses, which are typically attributed to heroin, nearly always come when the drug is tainted with adulterants like fentanyl, a substantially more potent opioid. They also occur when the substance is mixed irresponsibly with other compounds, something which can be addressed through providing improved education rather than the vacuous just-say-no approach. Drug-related violence as well finds its roots in prohibition. You will not find the CEO of Heineken ordering a hit on the CEO of Budweiser in order to increase market share. Yet, analogous phenomena did occur during alcohol pro prohibition in the US. Drug-related violence has nothing to do with the pharmacological properties of the drug is entirely the legal framework that we wrap around the substances. Instead of providing a legally regulated market, we allow criminal entities to be suppliers who compete not with advertising campaigns, but with Hobbesian violence. Now, if we look into the history of prohibition, we will find that drug laws have frequently been utilised as a political tool to demonise certain subsections of the population. When a psychoactive substance becomes associated with a particular demographic, demonising the substance can serve as a useful proxy for demonising the people, especially if that demographic is already resented by other sections of the population. This affords politicians the ability to tap into already existing fears and stigmas regarding certain groups of people, though in an implicit and indirect manner through focusing on the symbol of drugs. The alignment of particular substances with specific racial or social groups is evident throughout history. Yet, this history rarely gets mentioned in our conversations regarding drug use because it confronts us with the unsettling realisation that we are continuing to fight an overtly racist war. Even today, whilst drug usage rates are quite similar across racial lines, the policing and sentencing related to drug offences are heavily skewed. In the United States, for example, black individuals are vastly more likely to be arrested for drug possession than their white counterparts, even though drug use rates are comparable across both groups. The US also has the highest incarceration rate globally, with racial minorities, particularly black and Hispanic men, being vastly overrepresented in prison populations. Many of these people in prison for non-violent drug-related offences. Communities of colour face the brunt of the aggressive policing practices motivated by the drug war, which again arose trust in law enforcement. Incarceration disrupts families, limits economic opportunities, and strips individuals of voting rights in many states. In light of these realities, it's crucial that any meaningful conversation about drug reform confronts the racial injustices that have long been a hallmark of drug policy and enforcement. This entwining of race and drug policy is not a recent phenomenon, but has deep historical roots as seen in the case of opium and marijuana. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the U United States saw a significant influx of Chinese immigrants, many of whom came to work on the transcontinental railroad and in gold mines. As they settled, these immigrants brought with them various cultural customs, including the consumption of opium. This practice became a point of concern for white Americans, predominantly because it was seen as a vice from an exotic land. Opium dens, often frequented by Chinese immigrants, became iconic representations of these anxieties. By the late 1800s, 
anti-opium sentiment had grown, driven not just by concerns over the drug itself, but by broader nativist and xenophobic tendencies. Chinese immigrants were unfairly blamed for numerous societal ills, including unemployment, and were stereotyped as morally corrupt. Opium and its association with the Chinese was a readily available scapegoat. The San Francisco Ordinance of 1875, for instance, was one of the earliest laws that banned opium dens, and though it did not target the Chinese explicitly, it was evident that the law was directed at them. Over time, these local ordinances gave way to the more extensive federal laws, culminating in the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914, which regulated and taxed the production and sale of opiates. Marijuana criminalization in the US as well is intricately tied to its association with marginalized racial and ethnic groups. In the early 20th century, with the influx of Mexican immigrants following the Mexican Revolution of 1910, cannabis became increasingly popular in the southwestern states. The drug, commonly known as marijuana or reefer, in this context was linked to these immigrant communities. Prevailing stereotype depicted Mexican users as lazy and disruptive to the societal order. Alarmist reports even suggested that marijuana induced violent and criminal behaviours in its users. During the Jazz Age, marijuana became popular among African American communities, especially in the burgeoning jazz scenes of cities like New Orleans. Again, as a common motif of the drug war, racist stereotypes conflated African American musicians' marijuana use with perceived moral and societal decline. Policymakers and media outlets perpetuated these views, thereby stigmatizing both the users and the substance. A significant player in this campaign against marijuana was Harry Anslinger, the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Anslinger embarked on a zealous crusade against the drug, employing a campaign that leaned heavily on racial and ethnic prejudices. He perpetuated myths about marijuana users, suggesting that they were prone to violence, insanity and uncontrollable sexual urges. Anslinger's racialized propaganda was pivotal in shaping public opinion against marijuana, culminating in the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, which effectively criminalized the possession and sale of cannabis. In both cases, opium and marijuana. The demonization of these substances were not rooted in their pharmacological effects, Instead, societal fears, racism and xenophobia played decisive roles in their criminalization. Many of our conventional beliefs surrounding illegal drugs exaggerate the harms they cause and neglect to acknowledge the genuine benefits that they bring to users of such compounds. At our current cultural moment, most of our discussions regarding such substances suffer from a pathology bias, that is, we are inclined to interpret any such use of these compounds, whether it is cannabis, MDMA or LSD, or even hard drugs like methamphetamine, cocaine or opioids, as inherently pathological. We seem to have this taboo against altering one's state of mind, despite this appearing to be an instinctive drive amongst humans in many different cultures, as well as many non-human animals. Indeed, the inclination to alter one's consciousness is neither a modern phenomenon nor exclusively human. Throughout history and across cultures, individuals have sought ways to transcend their usual states of mind, often as a means of spiritual exploration, recreation, or coping with the vicissitudes of life. This pattern of behaviour is evident in both ancient rituals and in the simple behaviours observed in the animal kingdom. Consider the indigenous tribes of the Amazon who partake in the consumption of ayahuasca, 
This isn't just a recreational act, but a profound spiritual experience central to their culture and religious practices. Even animals exhibit behaviours suggesting a drive to experience altered states. Elephants, for instance, have been observed seeking out and consuming fermented fruits, which lead to a noticeable inebriation. Similarly, dolphins have been seen passing around pufferfish, which, when provoked, release a toxin that can produce a narcotic effect. These dolphins, they handle the fish with care, seemingly using the toxin in a recreational manner to induce a trance-like state. Both examples from ancient human rituals to observed animal behaviours underscore a universal pattern that the quest for altered states of consciousness is a natural and intrinsic drive cutting across species and civilizations. Far from being a taboo, it seems to be a shared, perhaps even evolutionary characteristic that demands a nuanced and open-minded approach when discussing its implications in modern society. In our culture, this taboo seems to be only applied to certain psychoactives, Alcohol, nicotine and caffeine do not suffer from the same degree of social stigmatisation. This is really quite an absurd thing when you think about it, especially when you consider, for instance, the normalisation of phrases such as drugs and alcohol, a phrase as absurd as saying fruits and apples or dogs and labradors. Your body does not distinguish between drugs based on their legal status. Our legal distinctions are purely an artefact of our cultural models and beliefs. They are classifications that we invent. The pathology bias, as pervasive as it is, fails to take into account the nuanced and multifaceted nature of drug use. It is not merely black and white, as the prevailing discourse would have us believe. Dr. Carl Hart, an esteemed neuroscientist and professor at Columbia University, has been at the forefront of challenging this bias, advocating for a more balanced, evidence-based understanding of drug use. Drug Dr. Hart often emphasises that the vast majority of people who use drugs do so responsibly and without de detrimental effects to their health or well-being. To quote him in the following, the vast majority of people who use drugs such as heroin, methamphetamine and cocaine don't become addicted to the drug. They use it responsibly without disrupting their social or occupational functioning. This is a radical departure from our conventional narrative surrounding hard drugs. And when I first came across Dr. Hart's work, I too found myself and my own drug assumptions challenged. However, I soon realised that my entire mental schema surrounding these psychoactives was not formulated from reading research papers, but was merely the unexamined internalisation of the current drug zeitgeist. I would look at MDMA as somehow distinct from methamphetamine, even though the difference between the two was merely a methylene dioxy ring. You know, MDMA stands for methylene dioxy methamphetamine. I also just assumed that heroin was this horrifically immoral substance based on movies like Train Spotting and the common cultural motif of the heroin junkie. Well, I failed to realise that I was perpetuating, again, drug myths and stereotypes by holding on to these beliefs. Fortunately, I realised quickly the shaky foundations that propped up these views when I was confronted with an evidence-based alternate perspective in the work of Carl Hart. His research has consistently shown that when given a choice between monetary rewards and drugs like methamphetamine or cocaine, many users opt for the former, suggesting that the compulsive irrational behaviour often attributed to drug users is not an intrinsic outcome of the drug's pharmacological effects. A common stereotype is that drug users are utterly enslaved, enslaved to their substance of choice, to the point where they would do anything, regardless of consequence, to obtain it. However, choosing monetary rewards, 
over immediate drug access suggests that many users can exercise self-control and make rational decisions when using drugs. This challenges the monolithic junkie portrayal of drug users that is so popularly disseminated. Dr. Hart argues that our current narrative surrounding drugs is coloured by a pathology-oriented perspective, which assumes dysfunction as a default state for drug users. He often cites the sheer number of functional to regular drug users as evidence against this view, stressing that detrimental effects often arrive not from the drugs themselves, but from the policies and stigmas surrounding them. His work emphasises, again, the racial and socio-economic dimension of drug stigmatisation. Drugs associated with minority communities or lower socio-economic statuses are often demonised, while those linked with affluence or the majority, like alcohol, are normalised or even celebrated. This distinction isn't about pharmacology, but about cultural narratives and prejudices. Nowhere is this more explicit than in our differential attitudes towards crack and powdered cocaine. Drugs like crack cocaine were associated with black people and became the perfect scapegoat for all the problems that were already previously there in their communities. What one must realise is that the difference between crack and powdered cocaine is pretty much a difference of route of administration. You know, they are both pharmacologically indistinguishable substances and yet we demonise crack with a far greater moral zealotry and sensationalism compared to powder cocaine. This sensationalism is perfectly encapsulated in the crack cocaine hysteria which emerged in the US in the mid-1980s, much like its predecessors in the anti-opium campaigns against Chinese immigrants and the anti-marijuana campaigns targeting blacks and Mexicans. The depiction of crack was heavily racialized. News outlets, in an effort to capture viewership, broadcasted distressing images of black individuals plagued by crack addiction, emphasizing the deterioration of urban communities. This narrative starkly contrasted with its powdered counterpart, cocaine, which was often related to white affluence and lacked the intense media scrutiny, scrutiny and resultant public panic. In a bid to address rising public concern, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 was ushered in. Amongst its many provisions was the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powdered cocaine offences. To illustrate, a mere 5 grams of crack led to a mandatory minimum 5-year federal prison sentence, while the same sentence for powdered cocaine required possession of 500 grams. This policy, echoing past le legislation, was not a simple oversight, but a manifestation of the racial biases underpinning drug perception. With crack being far more prevalent amongst black communities, this disparity resulted in an unsettling rate of incarceration for black Americans. The absurdity here, again, is that both drugs have pharmacologically indistinguishable effects. The difference really is just the route of administration. One is smoked and one is snorted. Punishing them differently is as ridiculous as punishing edible and bud cannabis differently. However, because the public has been so radically misled, we continue to meme and joke about crack with little regard for the pernicious racial undertones that underlie the crack stereotype. Dr. Hart's revolutionary work calls for a shift in perspective, a shift from one that sees drug use as a deviation from the norm, an aberration that needs correction, to one that acknowledges the myriad reasons that individuals turn to substances, whether for relief, recreation, or spiritual exploration. 
as he often states, to truly understand and address the complexities of drug use and its associated challenges, society must free itself from the chains of the pathology bias and embrace a more holistic, compassionate and informed viewpoint. In science we don't rely on beliefs, we rely on critical examination of the evidence. And when we examine the evidence from an unbiased perspective, it is clear that our drug policies aren't just ineffective, they're also unjust. Laws criminalising access to a certain subset of psychoactive compounds is one aspect of our society and culture where we openly condone the state telling us what we can do with our consciousness. We allow the state to tell us which intoxicants are legitimate and which intoxicants aren't, trusting them to make the safe and responsible decision. It is as though we are children who must be protected from ourselves. Yet notice how we allow potentially harmful activities like boxing, mixed martial arts and other contact sports, activities which impose a non-trivial degree of risk upon the participants, risks of head injury, death and much more. We allow people to do these things because they are responsible adults who understand the risks involved. In other words, we do not treat these people like children. When it comes to the topic of illegal drugs, however, a certain mental gymnastics is performed which infantilizes the citizen, treating them as though they are incapable of properly assessing the risks involved with drug use. Consuming anything has its risks, and some drugs are certainly riskier than others, but how is it that the risk associated with taking an illegal substance is more substantial when compared to the risk associated with entering a boxing ring. We permit an activity that literally allows people to slug the hell out of each other, but God forbid someone consume cannabis or MDMA. This fact I find to be an absurd feature of the society and culture in which I was born into. It speaks to an unprecedented irrationality which seems to go unaddressed in the wider public consciousness. People happily consume their booze, sickies and coffee, and yet in the same breath claim that they are not like those drug users, those degenerates who choose to alter their consciousness in the incorrect manner. What sort of legitimate authority can command how I regulate my unconscious experience? This authority seems to believe that a drug like alcohol, a drug which can literally kill you with its withdrawal symptoms, is somehow less harmful when compared to cannabis, magic mushrooms or LSD, all drugs which are impossible physiologically to overdose on. One would hope that our legal regulations on psychoactive substances tracks the scientific evidence pertaining to their harms and benefits. However, when you scrutinise our legal and illegal drug distinctions, it is very evident that they are, to put it bluntly, patently unscientific to the point of absurdity. A landmark study in from 2010 by drug science pioneer David Nutt and others titled Drug Harms in the UK, a multi-criteria decision analysis, addresses this question of whether our legal categorization of psychoactive compounds tracks the harms they cause. Their paper ranked 20 legal and illegal drugs based on the harm they cause both to individual users and to society at large. Surprisingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly for people immersed in the drug literature, alcohol was ranked the most harmful when combining both individual and social harm, followed by heroin and crack cocaine. In addition, many illegal drugs such as LSD and ecstasy were ranked as less harmful compared to legal substances like tobacco. What Nutt's paper underscores is both the significant harm posed by legal drugs, most notably alcohol, and the relative lack of harm of many illegal drugs. It is easy to assume that because the drug is legal, it is thereby safe and relatively less harmful compared to drugs which are illegal. However, in the case of UK drug policy, this is clearly untrue. 
evidently the current drug classification system does not align with the actual harm caused by these substances. This is non-trivial. What we are witnessing is a government approach to policy making that is actively unscientific. I should also add that David Nutt, a well-respected leader in his field, was infamously sacked as the UK government's chief drug advisor. His sacking is a painful reminder of how drug policy has become perverted by political motivations. Now, David Nutt, he was the chair of the UK government's advisory council on the misuse of drugs, a committee that provides the government with expert advice on drug-related issues. In this role, he was expected to provide evidence-based recommendations on drug classifications and policies. In 2009, Professor Nutt publicly criticised the government's decision to reclassify cannabis from a Class C drug to a Class B drug, asserting that this decision was not based on scientific evidence. He went on further to state that the risks associated with horse riding were statistically more significant than the risks associated with consuming ecstasy. This was a way of highlighting that public perceptions of harm and actual risk often diverge, particularly when it comes to drugs. His statements, while grounded in scientific evidence, were controversial. They were seen by many in the government as challenging the official stance on drug policy. The main point of contention was not necessarily the, the accuracy of his statements, but rather that he publicly criticised government decisions, which was viewed as overstepping his advisory role. In response to these comments and his criticism of drug policy in general, he was asked to resign from his position by then Home Secretary Alan Johnson. Johnson stated that Nutt was dismissed because he crossed the line between offering advice and then campaigning against the government on political decisions. Now, nut-sacking ignited a fiery debate about the independence of scientific advice and the extent to which policy decisions are, or should be, based on empirical evidence. It raises questions about whether the government was willing to prioritise political considerations over scientific evidence in policy making. I think Nutt's, testament is a, Nutt's dismissal is a testament to the uneasy relationship between politics and evidence-based policy making. This rift where empirical research is sometimes overshadowed by political narratives, isn't just an isolated incident, rather it exemplifies precisely what the drug war stands for. It deeply saddens me when I delve into the politics of drug policy, because it reveals how an unscientific approach to social policy can persist for many years unexamined in the general population. It is my sincere hope that through creating this kind of content I can help inspire deeper critical thinking on this matter, Power structures ought to be examined, and the structures that maintain this war on drugs demand an even more exhaustive examination. For too long, politicians have been able to obfuscate the deeper systemic drivers of poverty, unemployment and social deprivation through scapegoating the boogeyman of drugs. Drugs, they provide a highly symbolic image for political actors to demonise. They allow the reduction of complex social issues to the more simplistic phenomena of drug addiction, and thus all sorts of problems start to get attributed to the drugs themselves rather than the more relevant contextual and environmental factors which generate addiction. Drug addiction does not appear in a vacuum, and I must emphasise because it is not said enough that for all substances, addiction comprises a significant minority of use. In the same way that most people who have sex or gamble don't become addicts, it's exactly the same for people who consume drugs. Some drugs are certainly more addictive than others, yet even for the most socially maligned substances such as heroin, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, only about 23% of individuals who use heroin will become dependent on it.
This is in sharp contrast to the often repeated myth that a single use of anything will get one hooked. This narrative reduces the complexity of what addiction truly is and creates an element of fear and anxiety surrounding illegal drugs, something which largely isn't present when considering legal drugs. And yet, as we know, people can have significant issues even with legal drugs. An honest assessment of the ways in which drugs are used in society, by responsible grown-ups might I add, would reveal that in the overwhelming majority of cases, roughly 80-90%, to 90%, drug use is non-problematic and can bring a genuine source of joy to one's life. I acknowledge deeply the problem of drug addiction, and by no means am I invalidating the experience of people suffering from substance use disorder when I say that most drug use is non-problematic. I am merely stating the empirically observed reality that drug addiction is a minority of cases. We must separate out drug use and drug abuse. Drug addiction is less about the drug itself, but more about the individual's life circumstance. Many people believe that substance use automatically leads to addiction, but this is a misconception. Several factors can predispose someone to substance use disorders, but it's a complex interplay and no single determinant seals one's fate. The environment in which drug use occurs plays a critical role. If people use drugs in safe, stress-free environments, the likelihood of negative outcomes, including addiction, decreases. Many people who struggle with addiction, like I've said, are also dealing with poverty, lack of employment opportunities and other systemic issues. Addressing these larger systemic issues is often obfuscated by a myopic fixation solely on the drug. We know that most people who use alcohol do not have a problem. Why is this so difficult to acknowledge for other substances? Why do we so willingly demonise and dehumanise people who use certain psychoactives as drug users who are ruining their lives, but people who drink a couple pints at the pub with their mates are just having a bit of fun? It is because we are being relentlessly conditioned to perceive drug addiction as a necessary and logical consequence of drug use. Through this we have become blind to and participants in a collective delusion on the topic of drugs. Our culture is currently in a state of adolescence regarding the topic of psychoactive substances, and we continue to allow ourselves to be treated like children, but this need not last forever. Transcending the drug war requires transcending entrenched cultural and societal beliefs. It requires questioning our ingrained assumptions regarding drugs. This is not an easy thing to do. Critical thinking is exhausting, and it is much easier to just swim with the currents of convention. I cannot do that. I cannot willingly lie and be a cow when I see so clearly the harm that our current drug laws are doing. I cannot commit myself to the pursuit of truth and turn a blind eye when I know better. The social stigmatisation that I may receive from talking about this is a small price to pay for authenticity. The drug trade is a multi-billion dollar industry. This cannot be financially supported by the poor drug consumers who so often are the victims of our draconian drug policies. It is predominantly white, middle and upper class drug consumers who generate, generate the vast majority of profits for drug cartels and criminal enterprises. And yet, like cowards, they hide in the closet regarding their drug use. Many of these people are highly functional and do not have an addiction problem, but because the public's perception of drug users is of someone with a mental illness, they conceal their use for fear of ostracism. Nothing will alter the empirical reality regarding how psychoactive compounds are used in society. And this empirical reality can be summarised in the following. Responsible drug use is the norm, not the exception. 
I will continue to speak this message because it so painfully needs to be heard. The American Declaration of Independence proclaims the promise, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for its citizens, and yet they continue, along with many other governments, to undermine their citizens' sovereignty over their own consciousness. This is a profound moral failure, and we should expect more from our political and legal institutions.